Welcome back to the Early Weigh-In Podcast. If you're hanging out with us, make sure to hit that thumbs up, subscribe to the channel. Takes just a second, helps your boys out a ton. We're back for UFC Vegas 24 middleweight showdown between ex-champ Robert Whitaker and Kelvin Gastelum. An excellent night of fights, man. Yeah, man, an exciting fight we finally get to see after it falling apart all the way back at UFC 234. Um, we're looking to keep the ball rolling after just going positive uh, on our last event. You know, our two biggest plays on Joe Selecki and Daoon Jung hit with ease. Uh, you know, kind of got bought into the hype surrounding Mike Perry and the Baja Mendez uh, really didn't live up to the hype and kind of just looked like a punching bag out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this time we have 13 fights on this week's card and we'll go ahead and jump right into it. I think we've got a couple of pretty good reads that we're looking forward to playing. Starting off the card, we have Austin Hubbard, who's 12 and five, taking on Dakota Bush, Dakota Harry Bush, uh, who's a late notice replacement. Austin Hubbard, you know, as I, as I looked around on the internet, very highly regarded by his coaches and training partners. He's out there at Team Elevation and actually lives with Neil Magny and has apparently, you know, kind of taken Hubbard under his wing and has become a mentor to him, which I actually like hearing. Neil Magny's got the, uh, the fight IQ that I think that Hubbard could really learn from. You know, Hubbard uh, super high, only really lost to the super high-level grapplers of the division and, and truly – some really tough matchups. I think it's just 155 as a whole. It's just a tough division to kind of get uh, the ball rolling. Uh, compared to the guys that he has been matched up with, the, though, I think Dakota Bush is kind of a gift, if I'm being completely honest. You know, I think Dakota will likely come in here and try to test the wrestling of Hubbard, considering the success that, other, his, that his opponents have had in the past. Um, that being said, I don't think that Dakota Bush has really seen the the level that Hubbard's on just yet. Uh, Bush's record, half of his wins are by submission, uh, four of them. And in the tape study that I was able to see, it looks like he wants to establish that low calf kick early. And when he is on top, he does have solid pressure and can slice through your guard if you're not uh, well-versed on the ground. Uh, I think that Hubbard will be able to stay on the feet and will ultimately punish him. I'm actually looking to play Austin Hubbard inside the distance, but the fight doesn't go the distance. Sitting at plus money is is my favorite play on this fight. What about you? Yeah, man, for sure. I definitely see Austin Hubbard probably winning this fight. Dakota Bush stepping in for Natan Levy there. So a guy that I had already had an early play on there, just a nor- uh, another horrible matchup there for Austin Hubbard. And you know, I joked with you about does he have RDA's manager because it's just been horrible matchmaking from the get-go for this guy. He's got an obvious weakness in grappling, and they match him up with, you know, black belts like Dobby Holmos, uh, Joe Selecki, you know, Olympic wrestlers Marco Madsen, and even, you know, Max Roshkoff before he quit had, you know, a ton of success with the wrestling in round one. But on the feet, you know, he's real smooth. He doesn't telegraph a whole lot of things. He throws in good combination, and he's developed a good knee up the middle to stop some of those takedowns. Um, Talked about team elevation. The guy can easily go 15 minutes there. In the past, you know, six fights, you're right. In lightweight, it's a a hard division to gain, you know, to climb through. He's alternated wins and losses in his last six, but he's never lost two in a row throughout his 17-fight career. Um, I don't expect him to lose this one here either. On the side of Bush, um, you know, been fighting in LFA for majority of his pro career. He's seen some good talent through there. One of his decision losses come to Jalil Willis, which is a guy um, I really wanted to get UFC to get, but ends up in Bellator there. Activity-wise, though, you know, it's on Bush's side here. His two-fight win streak, we've actually seen him fight two times since we've seen Austin Hubbard there in the cage. You're right, man. Hard calf kick at range. He looks to back you up where he does his best work up against the cage. 
looks to set up that rear naked choke with the ground in town. But if he can't get any of that going, I see it much being like the max fight where Austin, you know, gets those combinations and stuff going on the feet. Um, I like Austin Hubbard to win this one as well. Awesome. Okay. Well, we start off the night both agreeing on one. I like that. For sure, man. Move to our Bantamweight division where we see Tony Gravely, who was 20 and six, taking on Anthony Burchak, who is 15 and seven. And Tony Gravely is a guy that I see real talent in, man. He's, you know, not ever going to touch a belt by no means. I don't have a problem saying that. But the dude, um, he shows me real things that I like. He trains out of American Top Team at 29 years old. This guy's got 26 pro fights already. Um, And it's been a tough road to the octagon. You know, he has this rep of kind of getting submitted real easily. But it's by high-level grapplers, man. Manny Bermudez, Patchy Mix is a Bellator title challenger. He went to war with Brett Johns. You know, he took Mareb to a decision. Hard road to the UFC, man, that I think has shaped him into the fighter, you know, made him a much better fighter today. Relentless wrestling, man, really looks to wear on you. Won eight of his last nine. The split over Geraldo de Freites um, should have been a unanimous de- uh, decision there. You know, really dominated with the wrestling like most fights. On the side of Burchak, you know, he's the biggest underdog on the card, and rightfully so, in my opinion. This is his second UFC stint. Um, two and five in the first one after being cut after, um, you know, Thomas Almeida brutally finished him. He's 0-3 and and risen, and I honestly thought probably that would have been the end of the fighting career, you know, but somehow reps off a couple more wins and and gets a short notice, um, you know, comeback fight with Gustavo Lopez, but doesn't go as planned, you know, dropped, submitted early, and and be honest with you, Gustavo Lopez is not some high-level bantamweight by no means here. Um, I think Anthony Burchak is um, is in way over his head, and Tony Gravely is, I, like you could say, like my lock of the night, man. I think he's um, an excellent parlay piece anywhere you want to place him. Yeah, man, Gravely is kind of uh, – we're on the same page. He's he's pretty much as, as close of a lock as you can get. Uh, like you said, in that DeFreitas fight, it kind of proved to where the, the strength was the biggest factor in that fight. It seemed like any time DeFreitas tried to stop the takedown, it was like Gravely could just push through it with just being a little bit stronger than him. Um, you know, like you said, you can't really not grab Gravely for any of his losses, all of those guys being top-level guys. And uh, training at AT&T, ATT, ATT and uh, being under 30 years old, I got to think that he's improving uh, every single every single fight. Right now, his inside the distance line is sitting at minus 105, which I think is playable. Um, you know, he hasn't really shown that that complete aggression trying to get the fight finished. But I do think that he's in a spot right here where uh, this guy's set up to, you know, to be a, a relatively easy win in his book. And uh, if he wants to go for that finish, I think that, that that'll be open with somebody like Burchak. Um, like you said, that Gustavo Lopez fight, he made Gustavo Lopez look like a world beater out there. And that's not something that you want to do. Um, it seemed like Lopez was able to take him down whenever. And with Gravely's wrestling heavy attack, I think that'll be something that he could go to at any point in time. Uh, not to mention on the feet, Burchak is just a little bit too hittable for my liking. Um, doesn't really have that good head movement. Um, that being said, he is a quick starter. And although I like the Gravely inside the distance, I'd be curious to see what the uh, fight doesn't go the distances, and that's at minus 180. Uh, not not crazy playable. I'm not I'm not crazy about that. The under two and a half at minus 140 is a little bit better, but um, this one, like I said, I, I leave I lean gravely. So if we're gonna play him, I'm I'm fine with making him a parlay piece. But if you just want to play him straight up, I think the inside the distance is the way to go. Absolutely, man. Glad to see we're off on a, a dis- uh, no disagreements. You know, right off the bat here. Love it. Moving on, we go to the women's 
Bantamweight division where we see Zara Fairn, who's six and four, taking on Josie Nunez, who's seven and one. Uh, Zara Fairn, you know, doing tape study, she has the build of somebody who I think could have potential as a as a fighter, but realistically, she's she this is a, a pretty low level fight all around. Um, you know, she, she her striking is Cindy Dubois, Dan esque. You know, she really has that that chin right up in the air, uh, straight punches, but they they don't have any power behind them at all. And from what I can see, you can pretty much take her down at will. Um, now, when you go to Josie Nunez, I was hoping to see something better in her tape study, but she is equally as easy to take down and uh, doesn't show much potential on the feet. I kind of compared her to Vanessa Mello as far as her build, but being only five foot two and 135 pounds, like this isn't the division for her. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Zara's first time moving down a division, which is uh, at five foot eight, you know, I think that that's her biggest advantage coming into this one. She's going to have a clear size advantage over Nunez. Uh, but from what I can tell, Nunez does at least tuck her chin whenever she throws her punches. And um, I think ultimately, if this fight stays on the feet, Nunez will get the more damaging strikes in this matchup. And I think that'll carry her into a decision win. Well, what are you thinking about this fight? Yeah, man, this is an extremely, extremely low-level fight here. And in tape study, especially UFC fights for, for Zara, quite painful there, man. But uh, signed off of a two-year hiatus of mixed martial arts and, and signed right into the featherweight division where she was fed to the last two title challengers in that division there in Felicia Spencer and Megan Anderson. You know, like you said, able to take her down and really expose a big hole in her game, one that a lot of opponents will probably look to, you know, exploit going forward as well. But she's taking a year off, man. She's worked on her BJJ there. She's in great shape. She fights real long. I think she's going to have a massive advantage on the feet if she can keep her range. Um, I just expect a much better showing. Um, you know, how could you not from her first two UFC outings there? She's also um, she's undefeated at 135. Every single one of her four losses are at 145 pounds or higher. You know, and she's out there fighting girls even before the UFC with at least 10 fights on their records, not, you know, with Josie Nunez over there with two and three fight, uh, you know, opponents' records. She's, she's riding a six-fight win streak over absolute garbage cans. The Brazilian regional scene is, you know, never, uh, never something that lives up to what it's supposed to there. Talia Santos is on, the, is on there uh, for a resume. Talia Santos pretty much ran through her from start to finish. At range, bro, you're right. Super hard kick. She swings the left hand from South Paul, but nothing's really set up there. And she's going to have to close a whole bunch of distance here. So, you know, looking through uh, the odds all week and seeing Zara as a dog, it wasn't really shocking to me. Now, I expect to see that. But when I start to break this fight down and realize she's going to have a six-inch reach, you know, um, she's dabbled with much higher competition of girls. I think this line's going to flip come um, come fight night, especially when people, you know, who don't really pay attention to this fight see these girls square off come the weight, uh, weigh-ins. I think this line flips, man, and um, I think I'm probably going to try to play Zara before she gets to, play, uh, to you know, the, the favorite here because I, uh, I think she is the favorite, and I think the odds makers got it wrong. Man, I think uh, both of us are just kind of taking stabs in the dark and come fight night, we might both regret either lean that we have on these girls, you yeah, know? And, uh, you'll, uh, you'll never see the podcast reputation put on one of these girls right here. Not at all. This is strictly degenerate stuff right here. Now we move on to the men's middleweight division where I think we're going to see a play from us, man. We have Gerald Marshard, who's 31 and 14, taking on Bartos Fabinski, who's 15 and 4. 
Mearshart is, uh, you know, looking to leave a different taste in people's mouth from his last performance. He was, uh, you know, he lost to Chemayev. He was walked down, dusted in under 20 seconds with the first punch. And it's quite the same the fight before that. You know, Ian Heinish, first real overhand right that he landed, it, it, it put him down. He was able to put him away. And from what I see, I think that's the body, you know, that's the body's way of telling him he should hang it up here, man. He, he's lost six of his last 10. He's came as an underdog in his last nine fights. And he's really just become the suburb uh, bus type of fighter with 23 of his 31 wins by sub. Man, training out of Rufus Sport, you'll hear it every time I break down a fighter from there. That gym is dying. You know, all their good all their good talent is either aging, moving the gym. And they had young guys like Brendan Allen, but you see him down at Sanford MMA and stuff now. that The gym's just not got a lot left. On the side of Verbinski, he's been in the UFC since 2015, sporting that 4-2 record there, but – most recently, you know, we've, we've only gotten to see him here because he was coming off a three-and-a-half-year layoff before that Darren Stewart fight and looked good despite that massive layoff. He used to be a welterweight, so, you know, in his next fight with Andre Munez, who was a big middleweight, you know, he was able to actually take him down. The game plan was going according to plan, and he was just submitted by a high-level black belt out of guard there, which kind of worries me, you know, because three of his four losses are by sub, and 23 of Gerald's wins are by sub, but – you know, Gerald's got to come out here and just prove me wrong, man, because at this point I think he shot, and at a minus 130, I'm, I'm looking to play Fabinski, man. What about you? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, you, you talked about Gravely being your lock of the night. Fabinski's kind of mine, man. I really do think that his wrestling and top pressure will be the uh, the story of the night in this matchup. Mearshart, you know, I looked back on, on the majority of his wins, and I really can't find anybody – noteworthy you know it seems like anytime he does take that step up in competition he it really doesn't pan out um and it doesn't even have to be a huge step up in competition like we're talking about the ian heinishes the eric anders and that's somebody who i think is comparable to bartos fabinski and his uh mma you know uh, abilities like you said with gerald mearshart having 45 fights under his belt being only 33 years old i do think that he has the more wear and tear on him even though fabinski is the older fighter fabinski has that style where he doesn't take a lot of damage when he fights or at least attempts not to and you talked about his uh you know his last two losses coming from submission that is you know like you said of course something that you worry about with mearshart but i, I do think that this will be somewhat of a uh, Vince Pichel, Jim Miller situation where you're just going to have somebody who's a little bit too heavy on top, uh, a little bit too dominant in the wrestling aspect of the game that your the jiu-jitsu isn't going to be able to uh, be showcased here. Um, you know, Fabinski, he averages over seven takedowns per 15 minutes and a 70% accuracy. I think that it's going to be a, a no-brainer that Mearshart winds up on his back eventually on this fight. Mearshart is even Mearshart is even known to kind of accept that position uh, willingly. Uh, I truly think that, you know, this one will be a, a, a pretty easy win for, to, for Fabinski, somewhat similar to the Joe Selecki fight last weekend. I think he could just lay uh, in top position and ride this one out into a decision win. Yeah, man. Um, Gerald Mearshart, really not impressive to me. You know, and Southpaw, of course, he's got a good left hand, a good body kick, but all those strikes come extremely, extremely slow. Um, and like Sam Alvey, tends to put his back up against the cage. And, man, Fabinski, that's where he lives, man. He's got such great chain wrestling against the cage. And we see this fight going the exact same way, which makes me even more confident to bet it, man. I see Fabinski just riding out top pressure, you know, he could get to finish with ground and pound. But like I said, um, like you said, I think it's just a wrestle fuck to decision, man. 
Yeah, and right now he's sitting at like a minus 130, minus 135, and I think that's super playable. I don't expect us to get better odds as the week goes on, so if I, I personally will be locking this in now. Absolutely, man. I agree with you. Moving all the way down to the women's strawweight division, we have Jessica Penny, who's 12-5, and five, taking on Lupita Godinez, who's 5-0. and oh. Uh, Jessica Penny, you know, four years and four canceled bouts later, and we finally get to see her return to the octagon. Uh, on that three-fight losing streak, and at 38 years old, I really do think that she could get hurt bad by this 27-year-old <laughs> killer standing across from her. Uh, Lapita, she's a very strong, very athletically built, uh, kind of built like Claudia Gedalia, just abs and traps and everything. And uh, she fights mean, you know? She fights like she's out there mad at somebody, and uh, coming off that Vanessa Demopoulos fight, you know, that was a tough five-round war that she went in and, and really just whooped up on Demopoulos for all five of those rounds. Showed that she had a great gas tank. And, you know, watching some of her tape study in the past, she throws girls around. Mm -hmm. She utilizes that strength. Uh, Panay, you know, uh, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and will likely look to to clinch and throw those knees up the middle that she likes on this smaller fighter who's only five foot two. Um, Panay, she does have good timing on her takedown attempts, but struggles to hold down opponents, and especially against somebody like Lapita, who's so strong. I doubt that if she does is able to get it to the ground, that she's going to be able to hold somebody like Lapita down. And um, if this stays up on the feet, I think Lapita really has got this uh, locked up. I know right before we started this breakdown, we talked about Lapita inside the distance sitting at plus 350. That's something that I, I really do think has some value here, even if even though uh, Lapita is making her debut here. What are you thinking? Yeah, man, we see this fight the same way. Panay there trying to get back into the octagon at 38 years old now. You know, not only the injuries, but just you saw the suspensions. And there's articles out there, man, you got to read about because she's doing some shady stuff trying to avoid some of those suspensions and stuff. It, it's a pretty interesting read there. But, you know, at 5'5", five, five, she got a good frame for the division despite being Invicta's Adam Weight champ before coming to the UFC. And the list of competitions she's fought, it is much better. But, you know, we got to be honest, she didn't she didn't put up much of a fight to Joanna or Andrade. You know, they, they beat the brakes off of her. And then a loss to Danielle Taylor really shows you where she sits at in the division, even prior to the layoff, the USADA issues. But training with Angela Hill, man, she looks in good shape. Um, she got a lot of kicks to her game there. But she, uh, you know, she does not move her head whatsoever. And I think she's got a much, much harder test than Hannah Goldie standing in front of her now. A lot of people think they are throwing her to the wolves with this one, Lupita. Despite being 5-0, and she's also got a nine-fight amateur record. And, I mean, I mean, she just busted Vanessa up for straight 25 minutes, man. The boxing was so crisp. Reminded me of a lot of Vivian Arujo there. Just a ton of pressure, a lot of pop on her shots. You know, these girls, are they're just at two different points in their career right now. And, and Loopy is a girl that I really, really favor here. You know, I, I referenced the Alexis Davis-Sabina Mazo fight. When this one brings up, you know, you had Alexis Davis who was coming off a massive layoff, but obviously had an advantage on the mat here and was able to just lay on top of Sabina Mazo for 15 minutes. I'd hate to see that happen here, but you know, I was favoring Hannah Goldie against Jessica Panay, so I'm most definitely favoring Lupita here, and I, I think she very well has the chance to put, you know, Panay out on the feet, much like Joanna and Drodge did, man. Yeah, I love that play, and especially considering it's it's those type of odds at plus 350, we can just dabble on that and really get a good payout. For sure, man. We jump up quite a bit to um, 
you know, maybe the public's most exciting fight of the night. We see Alexander Romanov, who's 13-0, and taking on Juan Espino, who is 10-1. and Romanov, he's, he's one of those few heavyweight prospects right now that's got a lot of steam and hype behind him. And UFC's been qu- quite generous with his matchups, giving him Rocky Martinez, Rogerio DeLima, and he's just an absolute force. He, you know, he does have the wrestling background, but he relies on a lot of strength and just you know, brute force to, to get a lot of things done, much like, you know, his forearm choke that he's, he's done three or four times. But don't be, you know, don't be shocked. He will shoot a fast double leg on you. And when he gets the body lock, you're going for a ride. What you like about, you know, Romanov is he's finished all 13 wins, splitting them up eight by submission, five by TKO. He's shown he's pretty well-rounded. And despite a lot of these coming in early in round one, I, you know, I see the holes as the fight progresses, but it is nice to see that in round three, he does have two finishes, and the gas tank was still there to get the finish come late in the fight. On the side of Juan Espino, man, you know, winner of Ultimate Fighter, but but then a two-year layoff, um, you know, a lot of guys forgot about him, but he comes back and looks sensational against Jeff Hughes, but 0-3 in the UFC, Jeff Hughes is not someone to really ride home about, and you want to talk about pointless seasons of the Ultimate Fighter? It doesn't get any more pointless than that season of the the heavy hitters with women's featherweights. You know where every one of them are now bantamweights. And I mean, who did want us be no beat on that show? Josh Parisian, Ben Sassoli, Maurice Green. I mean, he he beats Justin Frazier in the finale, and none of these guys have panned out to anything. You can't knock him for his one loss to Vidalin Benkov, who's twenty two and one at this point. It's it's just a tricky fight, in my opinion, man, because these guys are so used to being the offensive grapplers. We've not seen either one of them have to work, get up from their back, and I think both of them don't really have the cardio to be the defensive wrestler. Super interesting. I'm going to lean with the um, the younger side and the undefeated Romanov, man, but I think you might see it a little different. Yeah, here's our first disagreement of the night. You know, first off, I'd like to say I don't know why the UFC is doing this to us. I think that both these guys I'd like to see um, – have they have they have far better matchups than they take than on right more rookies take on more Marie screens you know build the stock right more. right and I've heard an argument that you know maybe the UFC is trying to weed out the the grapplers of the heavyweight division and maybe kind of um, you know push the better of the two into the into that upper echelon of the division uh, with Romanov you know he really does live up to that King Kong nickname like he absolutely beats people down and like you said kind of has those schoolyard submissions that you're putting your little brother in whenever they're growing up you know it's 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 un- unorthodox and very strongman type submissions that you see and um, you know I know you touched on the gas tank him kind of getting that third round finish but Man, after that Rocky Martinez fight, he was sucking wind after that first round. I was a little worried, and um, he proved me wrong. But somebody like Espino, who, like you said, kind of has that uh, similar style with the the wrestling-heavy attack, but also the physical attributes that matches Romanov pretty well. You know, with an 80-inch reach and being an inch taller than Romanov, I think this will be the first time that Romanov is actually in there with somebody who, um, you know, not only is one his weight – close enough to his weight, but also his size. You know, Rocky Martinez was more than enough uh, close to Romanov's weight, but just didn't really have that athletic ability that I think Espino has. Um, If this fight does become, you know, two grapplers that end up on the feet and it just be a stand-up war, I think Espino has the edge here, having that 80-inch reach. And uh, from what I have seen in the limited amount of tape, he can hide behind that jab. And it's nice to know that he at least can utilize that reach advantage that he has, which is why I like leaning towards him and getting him at plus money is enough for me to um, 
you know, enough for me to play him. It's one of those ones where I'll be more than happy to sit back and just kind of enjoy the violence here. Um, but if I am going to make a play, I'll definitely take the underdog in Espino, considering I think this is a coin flip type of fight. Yeah, for real. He's uh, he's light on the feet, man. He trains out of a good team, an American top team, where he's surrounded with, you know, really good heavyweights. He's by far the more decorated grappler of the two. And um, it's just still, to me, they're both unproven. And if I can get guys who, um, you know, one's 10 years younger than the other, it's really hard for me. You know, the age is going to catch up to him at one point. Um, and, you know, his cardio was not proven to us either. But it is it is a coin flip, man. Um, I think this is going to be the official challenge. Um, I know we're having to do this one via Zoom. Um, but we're thinking about making this one a challenge. There's also one that we're all, you know, later on in the car that we're looking at as well. But looking to make an official challenge to break out the casual cap next week. Am I correct? Yes, I, I like that. And I think this one's a good one to do it just because it is complete violence. And um, yeah, why not? Why not make it a heavyweight fight that the challenge is on? Feel you, man. Yet another women's fight. Uh, we got Tracy or Cortez, who's eight and one, taking on seven and three, Justine Kish. Uh, Cortez, you know, her wins in the UFC – or her recent wins uh, against Agapova, uh, Blanchfield, Vanessa Mello, uh, Stephanie Eggers, those are all actually kind of aging well. And, um, you know, as Cortez moves along, being only 27 years old, I do think that she's improving every single time that we've seen her out. You know, she does have that relentless takedown pressure and has uh, shown to have really good strength inside the clinch, something that uh, Stephanie Eggers had zero answer for <laughs> in her fight. Um Cortez, she's good about making you pay for lazy kicks or lazy strikes. She's good about catching your kicks or getting that body lock takedown. And uh, until she fights like a high-level striker that's going to be able to to keep her at distance, I, I'm okay with betting Cortez uh, as she moves forward in her career. Kish, you know, one and three in her last four with her most recent loss to Sabino Mazo. Uh, Kish is averaging about one fight a year, and I don't really love where – her career's heading at this point in time. You know, she's only 32 years old, but I haven't seen much improvement fight to fight like I have seen in Cortez. You know, I looked at that Herrig fight, and that was one that I can really draw a lot of comparisons to, uh, to, the, to Cortez's style of fighting. Herrig, uh, constant pressure, constantly was able to get that body lock takedown exactly like Cortez likes, and uh, really, you know, beat the shit out of her that fight. Um, I do think that Kish throws a little bit harder than anybody that Cortez has seen. So I will be curious to see how, how fast Cortez tries to close that distance. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, I think Cortez is, is a playable, a playable person in this, in the, on this card. I mean, it's hard to say that considering she's over a two to one favorite and she's a woman, but I, I do think stylistically, this is her fight to lose right here. Couldn't agree more with you, man. She's one of the UFC's gems right now. Not only, you know, showing great potential, but real easy on the eyes, you know. Um, brother was also a really good fighter, dreamed of being in the UFC. You know, he passed away, and it's, it's really give Tracy the motivation to fight. The, you know, the fire is always going to be there for her. You touched on the four good names that she has fought. Trains at a fight ready in Arizona there where she's in great shape. She gets the wrestling in with Henry Cejudo. And, you, I mean, you hit it spot on, man. She looks better each time she steps in that octagon. she got a good right hand, good knee up the middle. Um, and she's really, really good at uh, working her way to the back, man, when she does get you on the mat. With Justine Kish, you know, um, 
you know, she starts her UFC run good. You know, she beats Nita Ansarov. She beats Ashley Yoder. And I don't know if it's the injuries, you know, and then some of the poor, um, you know, fight IQ mistakes she's made. But now she's one and three in her last four. I mean, that one win was against Pudio Lova on a, on a big layoff for her where she actually looked pretty decent, um, you know, and has yet to, yet to live up to that performance. But with Justine Kish, man, she is a really, really physically strong woman. She throws really hard shots, but uh, no feints to her game or anything. She loads up, really looks for the home run shot. Um, and again, man, another fight, you, you know, you, you hit it, you hit the nail right on the head, man, with, with the fleece Herrig fight. It, it's spot on to how Cortez is going to be able to get this girl to the mat. I drew a ton of, um, you know, ton of things from that fight as well. I'm glad to see that we're on the same page. And however you want to uh, play Tracy Cortez, man, I'd be really comfortable with doing so. Uh, I like hearing that. I like hearing that. We move on, man, to the main card where we have a really exciting fight between Ricardo Hamos, who is 14 and three, taking on Bill Algio. This is a fight I've been extremely excited for, man, since the odds opened. And I actually have a plus money ticket on Algio, who's currently sitting at a minus 125. With Ricardo Hamos, he does split his time between Brazil, but he does a lot of his camps there at Team Alpha Male, and he's extremely, extremely talented, BJJ Black Belt. Um, one thing to note about him, though, and you know, this is going to be the first time it's seen that he's going to be an underdog in any of his UFC fights. He's been the favorite in every one of them, and you know, he's looked good at featherweight, but he never missed at bantamweight, man. So, I, you know, I'm curious as to why he moved up, as you're always trying to be the bigger of the fighters. Um, He's looking to bounce back off that ground and pound TKA loss to Lerone Murphy, which was the second time in four fights this guy's been finished. So, at, you know, at 25, that's something I really don't like to see. He likes the spinning elbow that he uh, TKO'd, um, you know, Zahabi with. That's ultimately what led to Lerone Murphy getting him to the mat. But what I like about Hamos is when he misses, when his opponents miss, he's really good at locking up the body and some type of clinch or just wrapping you up um, and getting the fight where he wants. Algio, what he has going for him, man, is a lot of size advantage in this one. He's a big featherweight, and he's taking on a guy, you know, who, in my opinion, like I said, never missing weight at Bantamweight is a true Bantamweight. So he's going to have the size going for him. He's kind of got that sideways striking style like Wonderboy. And, you know, much like Tony Gravely, a tough slate of opponents to get to the UFC, man. Jared Gordon, Shane Burgos, he goes to war with Brendan Lofton on the Contender Series. Um, Algio showed me good things that I like. Um, I know the takedown defense has been pretty sus, but it's been by some real physically strong guys that I don't know if the Bantamweight's going to be able to replicate. Um, I'm going with Bill Algio here. Um, I think you see this one a little different. Yeah, I definitely see this one a little different. You know, I'm happy to see the the odds going into my favor as a Ramos backer here. You know, at only 25 years old and training at, you know, one of the best gyms you could ask for at, at those lighter weight divisions in Team Alpha Male, I really do think that he's growing exponentially in each of his fights. And, um, you know, you talked about his, his move to featherweight being a little bit questionable. I, it does at least help looking back on his career that he is 4-1 and one at featherweight. And although coming off this Lerone Murphy loss, that is, you know, Murphy is just a, a physical specimen, one of the, the stronger guys of the division. And uh, hopefully he, he can avoid running into somebody who's so physically strong um, in, in his next few fights. You know, Ramos is excellent in the inside trips and getting underneath the arm and taking the back of his opponents. Um, but I don't like everything, uh, a couple of the things that he does. You know, he tries to be a little bit too pretty, kind of those fancy shots, trying to do the, you know, like, 
the spinning shit that got him in trouble with the Lerone Murphy fight and why it wound up on the ground. Um, just a little bit too fancy that I think will, will as he gets older, it'll he'll start to kind of uh, find his groove and, and kind of play it a little bit more safe. And hopefully coming off of that lot, that TKO loss, he's, he's a little bit more focused in this fight. Uh, Bill Algio, you know, he likes pumping that jab and using that clean striking of his, but he does kind of lack strength. He talked about him being one of the bigger guys of the division. I kind of think that that plays to his disadvantage in a, a lot of the times. I kind of compared him to Nate Diaz and, and the fact that he gets thrown around a lot. You know, he's, he's six foot tall, and when he does fight guys that are a little stockier than him, he does have trouble keeping his back off the mat. Uh, I think Ramos is technically a little bit better standing up and on the ground, and I think that'll make him pay. Um, you know, Algio, he has faced some some pretty pretty good names, but, you know, like you said, he, he's kind of fallen short every single time he takes that step up. Uh, both these guys having, uh, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts, I'm not really worried about the uh, submission, or the, the submission at all, really. I think Ramos, if he does get on top, will be able to just kind of ride out a decision. And if it does stay on the feet, uh, I think that he could pick him apart. He's really, really, uh, really good at moving in and out and kind of gliding on his feet. Um, and I really do expect to see a, a really good Ramos here and one that kind of gets by Algio relatively easy. Nice, man. Not always do we see him the same, though. It's what makes it come interesting when we get to watch the fight together on Saturday. I love it. Moving up a weight class, we go to the lightweight division where we see Violent Bob Ross, Luis Pena, who's 8-3, and three, taking on 6-1 and one, Alex Munoz. Uh, Pino's looking to bounce back from his first ever time being finished and his bout between it with comma worthy. Uh, Pino is going to be the taller, longer fighter here with six inches of height and three inches of reach. Uh, Pino is very comfortable engaging in a point fight and will likely want to keep this standing and try and pick him apart. You know, he really enjoys trying to establish that jab early and really utilize those kicks to keep his opponent at range. Uh, that being said, he does have the ability to mix in takedowns of his own. And when he is on top, he does have that heavy top pressure that could actually be a problem for somebody who's not used to being on their back. Uh, Munoz, he's looking to pick up his first UFC win after his debut loss to Hack Parast. You know, it's hard to gauge the level of striking you have with somebody like Hack Parast with that level of striking. But from what I did see, it really didn't look to be UFC caliber striking. Uh, he is fighting under Chris Holdsworth and Uriah Faber over there at Team Alpha Male. I know he has Cody Nolove as a training partner, which is great. But, uh, you know, it really does seem to be that Munoz is, is relatively one-dimensional. And although his, his wrestling, it looked good early against Hack Parast, it did become kind of uh, predictable when he didn't, you know, really set any of them up with strikes as the fight moved on. Uh, and ended up ultimately just becoming a punching bag for Hack Parast as the fight progressed. Uh, I think we'll see a similar fight in Pena, and Pena being uh, minus 140 right now, I think he's in playable range, and I'm happy that we're both actually leaning towards him. Yeah, for sure, man. Pena first got his name there on the Ultimate Fighter when DC and Stipe were the coaches there, and actually the favorite to win the season and gets hurt, and Upon his return, they immediately match him up with the tough winner in Mike Pisano because, you know, rightfully deserved. But that was one of the split decision losses there that, you know, he lost. He also lost a split decision to Matt Favola there in uh, Tampa that we saw. We got to meet him after that. Real cool dude. But, 
you know, his career could be in a real different place right now. You know, you talked about the comma worthy winning the first two, winning every bit of the third round before the net gets snatched up in some crazy, you know, modified guillotine. He could be looking like a six and no record or something in the UFC right now. This dude's a real student of the game. You know, once he uh, got off tough, immediately went to AKA with DC to work on all his skills there. Training all over the world, done his last few camps out of American Top Team. On the feet, man, real sharp hands. Chris Boxing from South Pole, really well at keeping the range there. A ton of feints and, and a really underrated wrestler, like you said. Well, Munoz, he, uh, he tried his shot on the Contender Series against Nick Newell, who's the one-armed fighter, actually. Um, you know, dominated decision, didn't really get the contract that night, but eventually did get the call. And, man, Nazrat um, really made him pay for, um, you know, sloppy takedown setups and, and really amateur striking, like you said. Once the takedowns were stopped, um, Munoz really didn't have much to offer him on the feet. And come round three, he, you know, the gas tank failed him, and he really was a punching bag. Um, you know, I would probably say Pena's a step down from Nazrat, to be honest with you. Nazrat, you know, right there on the cusp of the top 15, but there's still a really clear striking advantage that Pena has here. Munoz is a former D1 wrestler. You talked about him working at Team Alpha Male there, but there's not a lot of 6'3 guys, you know, at Team Alpha Male to imitate someone like Luis Pena. So I doubt he's really getting the good looks that he wants. And if Pena can take the, uh, stop the takedowns, like you said, I, I feel like he's the much better striker. And I see him taking this one probably by decision just with Munoz being too tough to be put out of there. Yeah, I'm glad we're both looking at that the same way. For sure, man. We take a step up to the middleweight division where we've seen Abdul Razak Al-Hassan make his return. He's 10-3, and three, taking on Jacob Malkoon, who's 4-1. and one. The guys at Fortis MMA, you and me both, man, we – I mean, the whole world thought there was absolute killer in the making with Al-Hassan at one point. The dude finished every win of his by TKO, and there was not a single one of his opponents that could even make it out of the first round with him. But now he's in a bit of a tough spot, man. You know, he's lost his last two. He's also missed weight in his last two. But he was coming off, you know, a two-year layoff prior, and he was dealing with quite a bit of shit outside the octagon, you know, with the false uh, accusations and stuff. It, it, it really definitely took the, the focus away from his training. Um, but I expect a much better showing here at middleweight. I don't expect really the gas tank to fail him the way it did in Lazez's fight. And, um, you know, when you miss weight badly and Chaos Williams cracks you clean, you're going to go down there. Um, but he's just he's just set up to get back on track here. Man, Jacob Malkoon, second UFC appearance. And, you know, it's obviously because of Robert Whitaker. But he's on the main card yet again for some reason. He was on a pay-per-view in his, in his debut. And, the guy, Dan, over at Best Fight Picks tweeted out yesterday that Malcoon is to Whitaker what uh, Artem is to Connor, and that is literally spot on, best tweet I've ever seen there. But, uh, you know, UFC is doing this dude, again, no favors. When you're 4-0 and you're just gifted a UFC, um, you know, appearance, UFC is going to just, just try to kill you, basically, and that's what they're doing here with Phil Hawes and now Al-Hassan. Al-Hassan, first-round TKO all day, baby. Yeah, I think that's the move here. You know, for whatever reason, the odds makers are extremely fond of Al-Hassan, and it's really tough to get a good uh, price tag on him. Like, even coming off of a a huge knockout loss and moving up a weight class where where he's still sitting at, um, you know, almost three to one favorite odds here. And to me, he just hasn't proven it because any time that we have seen him outside of that first round, it, you know, he he's doesn't look great. Right. Um, 
That being said, I, I don't think that this is a fight that does see outside of that first round. I think you touched on his TKO prop being at like plus 135 if you're doing TKO in round one. And I think that that's probably the move. You know, as I mentioned, that 15-pound increase to 185, you got to question his cardio. Uh, hopefully, that'll be good for his chin. Uh, Malcoon, you know, didn't really get to see much in his debut against Haas. Uh, really hard to kind of gauge where he's at at this point in his career, only 25 years old. It's another one of those ones where uh, you, you better hope that he's progressing in each fight. Uh, from what I had saw in the Sebastian to to Messi fight right before his UFC debut, he does have a decent single leg that he'll, he'll go back to. And I got to imagine that's something that he would want to establish here early against Al-Hassan. I imagine after he sees the first couple strikes, if he can survive them, uh, he'll be dipping for that single leg pretty soon. Um, I, I truly think that this will be the, I think the under one and a half sitting at minus 140, there's value on that. If you do think that this is going to be a, a stand-up um, war, Malkoon could catch the, the possibly Chinny Al-Hassan. So I could see that, that narrative kind of playing into mine. But I, I think you touched it. You, you hit the nail on the head. Al-Hassan round one is the way to go right here. Yeah, man, they're both coming off fights where they were KO'd stiff early, you know, under one and a half, and minus 140, definitely playable, but the degenerate in me will always take a, a house as Al-Hassan first round TKO if you give it to me at plus money. Yeah, I like that. We've got a great fight in the heavyweight division where we, where we see the pitbull Andre Arlovsky, who's 30 and 20, taking on the vanilla gorilla Chase Sherman, who's 15 and 6. Arlovsky is looking to bounce back from that Aspinall loss. He's kind of one of those veterans that you can never count out. Um, but we've learned a similar lesson in McDessey last weekend where he took on Baja Mendez and really just gave him that vet lesson. You know, Arlovsky is kind of one of those fighters that will put you in that deer in a headlight type of state yeah. where his his movement, his awkwardness, the the timing and everything, it's it's enough to make you kind of second-guess your attack and really just leave your opponent frozen. He's also really good at testing your cardio and drawing out those fights. You know, his, like I said, that movement and that, um, that awkward defense allows him to really draw out the fights and, and take the, uh, his opponents into those deeper waters that they might not be used to. Chase Sherman, you know, looked good in his UFC return. After some time spent in BKFC, his boxing actually did look to improve, like, dramatically. Um, you know, he, he tore up the lead leg of Ike Villanueva, and that's something that I do look for him to implement in this in this fight as well. And all that being said, that was all done on six days' notice. So I can't imagine how great Chase Sherman's going to look here. Um, at 31 years old, you know, that's what I think is the prime in, of MMA in general, but especially in the heavyweight division. He's still got uh, time to learn, in my opinion. I do think that this is quite a big jump from Parker Porter, and it might be the UFC kind of, uh, you know, punishing him from his uh, run-in with USADA uh, in these past nine months. Chase Sherman notoriously struggles with that striking defense. His face constantly gets touched up in his fights, and that's something that I do think Arlovsky's going to take advantage of. I know you're not huge on betting the, the old fart in Arlovsky, but I, I do lean him, and I think that he's, he's playable. But I'm also understanding and, and not wanting to play him. Yeah, man, we're, you know, we're seeing Andre Arlovsky for the favorite for the first time, and I can't tell you how long, you know, it seems like his last 10 fights or something like that. And, you know, 
I know he's won his last two of his last three, you know, fights and made him so hard to cut. But, you know, I'm surprised to see him still on the roster. He's one of these older heavyweights, an ex-champion. He probably still makes a pretty fat little paycheck to show, you know. And um, we've seen him part ways with quite a few veteran heavyweights as of late. And Arlovsky, man, another one of these heavyweights that train out of ATT where he's going to get the best work with some of the, a lot of guys in his weight class. And he's been one of the UFC's most active fighters in any weight class. The dude's fought like 16 times in the last six years, um, taking on, you know, everybody from the up-and-coming prospects to guys on their way to challenging for the belt. Um, you know, the deer in the headlights w was a real good reference, Manny. He, he's real good at, like, luring his opponents to sleep, countering when they come in, and he just disrupts their timing and racks up points with the leg kicks. And here recently, dragging those fights out, protecting the chin, um, you know, something that he's needed to do as he's approaching his 51st fight. But Chase Sherman, man, he looked like a world beater against Ike Villanueva. Looked phenomenal. Looked good outside the UFC. But, you know, when he's back in the UFC, you know, facing these – higher level competition. I feel like he's just going to get pieced up again, man. He's one of these athlete football players turned fighter, um, just not real technical, man. And when he's in the pocket, the guy doesn't move his head at all. He really does have good knees to the body that he leads with. And he likes to use his elbows when he's in close. He's got real good speed, faster than most heavyweights. Um, you know, we, we see guys who take, you know, a week notice, fights and then end up popping for for you know for weed for steroids for stuff so it, it's not unusual um to see it but it is something you got to take note that the best performance of chase sherman's life you know was was when he was on the juice there and i do like to play arlovsky especially at a minus 135 he's seen you know things in this career that chase sherman just hasn't yet but with 50 fights and at 42 years old he's always been on my list of guys to fade it's hard for me to pull the trigger, even with me seeing him as the favorite for me. You talked about the the paycheck that the UFC is shelling out each time he fights. I just looked it up. It's a little over 300000 every time he steps out there. And you're right. He's, he might be fighting for pink slips here. If Chase Sherman can get the dub, I, I wouldn't uh, really have a reason to give the UFC to keep Arlovsky with that type of pay. Um, and then same goes for Sherman, you know, like, He's already got his second chance, and this is an obstacle that he definitely needs to overcome if he wants to be a mainstay in this division. Yeah, man, I'm right there with you. Man, we go to our co-main event in the evening, which is going to be a super fun fight. Man, we have Jakar Close, who's 11-2-1, taking on Jeremy Stevens, who's 28-18. I love taping Jakar Close. It's just an excuse to watch round two of him and Benel Dairouche fight. Um He's a fiance there of Courtney Casey, another UFC fighter. They're both always in phenomenal shape, keeping each other in check. The guy used to train out a fight ready, um, but I, you know, I've heard he had the falling out with Eddie Chaw and some guys like that. So he's he's kind of been bouncing gyms this last year. You know, Courtney just lost as well. He's coming off his first, you know, knockout loss of his career as well. So you know, the headspace of Dracar Close is is up in the air for me right now. But the dude does have a ton of forward pressure and. You know, as I think about it, Dracar Close is one of the first guys I remember to really attack the low leg kicks. I bring it back to the Casey fight, and that was years ago, but really targeting the low leg kicks and stuff. He's got an accurate right hand. But, um, you know, like Connor talked about with Jose Aldo in the, in the faceoff, he almost, uh, you know, he almost telegraphs it. He, it's sitting there shaking. He wants to throw it so bad. He loads up on it a whole lot. The grappling's really become a big issue for him um, on the scorecards here, but with Jeremy Stevens, he's moving back up to lightweight here after missing weight against Calvin Cater in his last performance. He's currently on the four-fight losing streak as well and on the tail end of his career, but the guy's making his 34th, 35th UFC appearance. He's third in overall fight time for the UFC. 
And he's fought literally, you know, the who's who of both divisions, whether it's, you know, Zabit, Max, Cater, um, Yair, and Featherweight, or, or if it's Pettis, Cerrone, Oliveira. I mean, he left a brutal finish over RDA at 55. Jeremy Stevens has got one of the best highlight clips that you can check out on YouTube there. He throws so heavy in every shot. It's a super close fight here, man, for me. Uh, you know, Dracar Close is no spring chicken. I think I'm going to side with Jeremy Stevens, man, and I think he's going to touch Dracar Close's chin and put him away. I think he's going to add Dracar to the list of uh, list of highlights that he's got. Yeah, man, uh, another one that we're just not seeing eye to eye on. Jeremy Stevens, like you said, he's he's nearing that 50, 50 fight mark in his career, and at 34 years old, he really has seen uh, a lot of abuse over the years. Yeah. Like he's been in some absolute wars, and uh, we that might be starting to take a toll on him. You know, we saw that Calvin Cater elbow that he ate, the Jose Aldo body rip. You know, he has shown weaknesses in his game that I think – somebody in Jakar Close, who is going to be the bigger guy stepping in here, could take advantage of. You know, Jeremy Stevens, yes, he was an ex-lightweight, but I, I truly think he was a 145-er at heart at all, the, at all points in times, and he's at a point in his career where he's really looking for any, any way possible to kind of revamp his career. On this L4, you know, it, it, it doesn't look great moving forward, and I think that he is kind of lucky getting Dracar Close, who's one of the smaller 155ers here. Um, Dracar Close has kind of made a living on making his fights dirty and, and draining his opponents by forcing them up, up against the fence and making them work every single time that he takes them down. I think that he's, he's going to look to engage really early here and, and kind of drain that power that Stevens obviously brings. Um I do think that uh, Close being the stronger opponent will be able to hold Jeremy Jeremy to the ground, and I don't think that he minds making this a shitty fight just to get the dub. You know, this is a huge step up in, in Close's career, and having, you know, a third of the amount of fights that Jeremy Stevens does, I got to think that he's going to want to play this safe. Um, here, I, I think that Close – I think that Close is the rightful – favorite and I'm more than happy with playing him nice man I see where you're coming from and Jeremy Stevens without a doubt won round one against Cater but I don't know if it was a weight cut or what but but the cardio um, he definitely started to slow down in round two there with that massive output that he had in round one but you know if your car close looks to extend this fight like I think eight of his nine UFC fights have been the distance um, the longer he drags it out I, I do favor him as well uh, maybe look at playing him by a decision prop but uh, I like Jeremy Stevens, man, in the cage. Um, his little comment at the Connor press conference may have been a little, you know, a little out of line, but the dude wasn't lying. He's got a nice highlight clip, and he, he does leave dudes in the dust when he hits you. Um, this is um, this is a fun co-main event, man. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. In our main event, we go to the middleweight division where we see Robert the Reaper Whitaker, who's twenty-two and five, taking on Kelvin Gastelum, who's seventeen and six. Uh, Robert Whitaker, he's 10 and 1 since moving up to 185 with his only loss coming to Izzy. And honestly, just an all around good guy, you know, like somebody that you want to root for. If you watch any of the embeddeds or uh, any just, you know, video that covers his life, it's it's tough not to root for him. He's kind of like Jan Blakovitz in that manner. Um, you look at his last fight against Cannoneer. A couple of takeaways was he still has that bounce to his game, mm -hmm. um, that stabbing jab that he that he can hold all the way down at his hip, and uh, that right high kick from hell that he touched up Cannoneer a couple of times with. That being said, he did kind of have some trouble with 
figuring out how to deal with the lead leg kicks of Cannoneer. And that's something that I expect Gastelum to try and implement here. He does have a hard inside low kick and that's, uh, you know, that's something that I think that he's going to rely on in the standup. I think Gastelum's striking is a little bit more technical, technical, but I think Whitaker has the speed advantage here. Uh, Gastelum, like Joe Rogan said in his last fight, he is world class, and he showed that in the Ian Heinish fight, where he, you know, he outgrappled Ian. He was the better striker, had great takedown defense, and you know that that was only two months ago. And he looked to to build off that momentum, and I guess immediately went into an eight week camp, and here he is fighting in possibly the biggest fight of his career, other than other than his Izzy fight against Robert Whitaker. They're both black belts and BJJ, and I, I think that that kind of will cancel out and we'll see a stand-up war here. I lean Whitaker here, and I think that with Whitaker being a minus 250, roughly, the only way that I'm looking to play Whitaker is by decision because I don't think that he's going to finish somebody like Gastelum, and uh, I do think that he's the better all-around fighter when, you, when, it just, when it comes down to it. Yeah, man, we see the fight um, exactly the same. This fight, like you talked about at the beginning, originally slated for UFC 234. You know, this was Rob was looking to make his second defense of his uh, middleweight title there before having to pull out with that severe injury, I think, day or two before that. But it was just two months later that, you know, that we got to witness Izzy and Gaslam in one of the absolute, you know, fight, fight of the years for sure. One of the best fights in UFC history actually took place ago two years ago today, actually. Both of these guys are ex-welterweights, but it's without a doubt, you know, Whitaker has had way more success since moving up. He's finished Tavares, Souza, and Brunson all on the feet on route to getting the belt. He's been an hour in the cage with Prime Yoel. And, you know, outclassed Till and Cannoneer both on the feet, man, in route to a decision win there. And it's all before 30 years old. It's I don't really know if his rematch with Izzy would go much different. Izzy's a very high-level striker, but I know it's one that he's really itching, you know, to get back because he was coming off that big layoff, you know, from his injury. Whitaker shows great cardio, huge toughness, great durability, underrated wrestling there, and he's got a, you know, just that bouncing way of getting in and out, you know, and, and avoiding a lot of damage there. That's, that's when Robert Whitaker is at his best is when he's bouncing and uh, fighting well behind that jab. And, there's not a person that hides the head kick behind the hands as well as he does there in the middleweight division. On the side of Kelvin Gastelum, you know, he's, he's not in his garage anymore with his girlfriend, you know, lifting weights for him, putting out his, uh, his workout plans. You know, he's back at Kings MMA where he is. And this is the second main event where we got a guy from Kings MMA, you know, uh, you know, as a headliner there and shit, it's actually the third out of our third main event out of the last four where we've seen middleweights headline it. Gastelum, um, you know, he's got very overlooked grappling as well. We've seen him, you know, actually go back to the, the grappling to beat Ian Heinish, like you talked about. Um, that being said, you know, come round three, Ian Heinish had his back for a lot of that and kind of started to come on. That leads me to think that Gastelum doesn't really have the grappling and cardio to go a full 25 up at, up at middleweight because, you know, I'm a firm believer that that welterweight is this guy's weight class here if he could get the diet under control and – when you lose to Izzy, to Till, Hermanson, Weidman, when you have to come back to beat Tim Kennedy and one of your best wins being Bisbeing off of a, you know, a two-week KO, you know, it, it really questions me for Kelvin Gastelum as, as to why he is still there personally, as to why he hasn't realized himself to get the diet under control and go back to welterweight. Um, 
And, and, you know, and again, you know, I think it was like last week's main event that I talked about whole lot to gain for, for Kelvin Gastelum here, not much to gain for Robert Whitaker after beating Till and, um, and Cannoneer. It's just another fight that Rob's got to take, you know, to get, you know, to get back to the title there. Um, I agree with you at minus 250. It's hard to play Rob. Um, I don't mind the decision prop though. I'm with you. Here's something else to consider. I think if somebody's getting the finish, it's probably going to be Gastelum. He's shown like extreme durability in his past fights where Whitaker does have a tendency to get tagged. We've seen him tagged in that Till fight and the Romero fight, the Brunson fight, the Cannoneer fight in his last one in that third round. Um, that is something to take take into consideration. I think Kelvin Gastelum inside the distance is plus 300 or 400 something. And, um, you know, if you did lean Gastelum, I would urge you to take Gastelum inside the distance because I don't think he's going to outpoint somebody like Robert Whitaker. I'm with you, man. If you're taking Kelvin, take him inside the distance here. If you if you lean Rob, I think the decision's the way to go, man. 100%. That does conclude the breakdown, man, of all 13 fights here on UFC Vegas 24. Um, you got to look through all of them, man, and, and pick out a fight for everybody to pay attention to. What's that one? Pretty easy for me. It's got to be the Alexander Romanov versus Juan Espino fight. Uh, two absolute units just going at it. Like, who doesn't like to see two huge heavyweights, like, go head-to-head? Yeah, man, I'm with you. That's that's kind of the people's main event this week for sure. All the eyes are going to be there. For me, man, the co-main event, Jakar Close and Jeremy Stevens, is going to be an absolute brawl. Um, I know they're both coming off, you know, getting KO'd themselves, but but neither one of the, are the gun-type uh, shy fighters. They're going to come there, meet in the middle, and, and put on a good fight for us. I'm going to go ahead and take, uh, you know, the fighter throughout the car that I think people need to keep their eyes on. And that, that's going to be Al Hassan, man. You know, he's, he's up a weight class. Hopefully it gets the cardio and weight under control. And um, there's not a better opponent that you could have spoon-fed him to get back on track with a nice first-round finish. I like that pick. Mine's going to have to be Tracy Cortez for <laughs> obvious reasons. Uh, but also because she's a 27-year-old, like I said, she is making those huge improvements yeah. and looking to keep that momentum off the Stephanie Eggers win. I think that she has a real opportunity to showcase her skills and get another win under her belt. Yeah, now, so for the underdog here, uh, I think we're going to take the Bill Algio and the Ricardo Ramos fight because we both actually have an underdog ticket on the, you know, on the side that we side with there. Um, going to be a fun one come Saturday. Um, I think we both agree on our best bets here as well, man. Tony Gravely, anywhere you put that guy throughout um, any of your bets, I think he's my lock, uh, my lock come Saturday. What's your best bet? Yeah, gravely with a bet, little bit better. Um, my my guess, Bartos Fabinski is definitely my pick. I think he's got a little bit more of a playable price tag if you're trying to play him straight up. Where, like you said, the gravely um, price tag is more of a parlay piece rather than a straight bet. But uh, both of them uh, about as much of a lock as you can get on a fight card. Absolutely, man. That concludes us all, man. If you're still with us, hit that like button, subscribe, and let us know in the comments who you got in the main event this week. And We'll see you guys next week. Hope you're making some money with us. Peace.